classes on Sunday morning as uh, our Sunday morning sermons are following that, that outline, sort of. Uh, we may be a little bit uh, ahead of where the classes are this morning, but we're in Matthew chapter 9, so make sure that your Bibles open are open to that chapter. And then inside of that announcement sheet, you're going to find an outline that you can use as we go through this study this morning. And uh, now that we've got that uh, taken care of, we're ready to study. Let's pray and ask God to bless us in that study. Father, great are you to us. We think of, of all of the ways that you have blessed us. But in this moment, Father, uh, living in grace and standing in this grace, being justified in your sight and, and having peace with you because of our faith, uh, we are thankful for this word. We're thankful for every, every nuance that we find in your word, Father, that, that changes us and, and helps us to see you more clearly and to see just the greatness of the relationship, Father, that extends from your heart to our heart into all of eternity. And it's our prayer, Father, that we take this word seriously. That we understand that not just the great cost of our salvation to you, but the great cost for the, the, the benefit and, and the blessing of this word to be held in our hands in a language that we can understand every day and without danger to read this word and meditate upon it. And what we pray for, Father, in this moment is that you give us the eyes that see and ears that hear. For we do want to discern. In our community, this, this, this city of San Antonio, we seek to be profound people, spiritually speaking. We want everyone who looks upon our lives and, and hears our words, sees our actions, experiences our emotions, Father, to somehow be able to see the gospel and especially to see your Son Christ living in us in ways that are beautiful and winsome. So bless us, Father, in this way as we study and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6. There's uh, a lot of teaching in Matthew. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of teaching, but there is some, some detailed teaching in Matthew chapter 6 about the right reasons and the right ways to fast. We speed forward now to Matthew chapter 9, and we find a conversation involving the subject of fasting. And the, the point of chapter 9, the point of this conversation, is not why are you not going without food? Why are you not fasting is not the point. The point is... Why do you mourn? Why do you mourn? Now at this time in Jewish history, fasting was associated with mourning. It was associated with grieving. There was a funeral. There was the loss of somebody that was loved. Or there was a national crisis spiritually or militarily or politically, economically, whatever it might be. And there were national fasts. And people would fast because it was a sign of grieving or mourning, a bad situation that had come upon them. Now we know that there's nothing wrong with fasting. We should be fasting today. The New Testament church in the first century fasted. We should be fasting today. But Jesus is saying in this chapter, this ninth chapter of Matthew, that if you live and, and, and fast in such a way that it's somber and joyless and cheerless and gloomy and bleak while He is with them, then that is completely inappropriate. That's why he gives this metaphor, this little illustration of the wineskins. No one, and everybody knew this, 
No one puts new wine in an old white skin because it doesn't work. It's improper. It's unfitting. It's, no pun intended, but literally it's misplaced. Now there is a time when, as Jesus says, that He's going to be taken away from them, and that is going to be the fitting time to, to, to mourn and, and, to, and to grieve. But in the meantime, and that is probably, by the way, a, a reference to that three-day period between His crucifixion and His resurrection. But in the meantime, He is with them. His presence is with them. And mourning and grieving is inappropriate. And to drive that point home even deeper, He says the reason is because I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning and, and maybe you don't really know all that much about Jesus or what Christianity is all about, let me give you just a, a little thumbnail of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means it's basically like, like being at a wedding feast where Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about that, that little word bridegroom and how it applies to us and enriches uh, our lives as believers and disciples and not, and not just makes us more dedicated to making sure that we're doing the right thing all the time, but it should create in us a different kind of emotion as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to live our lives inside of the kingdom. It's not just about the obedience, 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 but it's also about the, the happiness and the joy and the festive spirit and the enthusiasm and the vim and the vigor in which we approach life in the kingdom because He's the bridegroom. Now, what does it mean for Him to be the bridegroom? First of all, it means that He is, that Jesus is God. That is one of the things that it meant for Jesus when he refers to himself as that bridegroom. Now everyone listening in that room when he said that, and all of us who have been reading the Old Testament for a couple of years, know that this is this bridegroom is, is a metaphor used to describe God, that he is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. You see this all over the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 50, Ezekiel chapter 16. Basically the whole book of Hosea is about God as the bridegroom, and, and Israel, or, or God's people, as, as the bride. And there's also this sad little passage over in Jeremiah chapter 3 that talks about this relationship and how what it's like when, when that relationship is not right between the bridegroom and the bride. And Jeremiah says, what, ha, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and, have, and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will what? I will frown on you no longer. Now that relationship is not supposed to be about frown, but a smile. 
And all through the Old Testament, God is saying that I am the bridegroom and Israel is my bride. And then Jesus comes along and here in Matthew chapter 9, He says that He is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is me. And in so doing, He is claiming to be God. And at the same time, He's really blowing the minds of His listeners because of all of the nuances that this metaphor means. Secondly, and for instance, the bridegroom has a bond with His bride. The bridegroom has a bond with his bride, and that bond consists of duty and love. Now, here's what I mean. Think, think for a minute about a good marriage. It might be your own, or it might be somebody near you. It might be your parents or some relative or a friend. But think about a good marriage. Any marriage that is only, only duty is not going to make it. It's not going to last. I mean, can you imagine, you know, a, a lot of marriages, there's, there's at least once a week where the husband and wife will go out, especially if they're kind of empty nesters or before they have children. They decide, you know, every Friday night we're going to go out on a date. Can you imagine if a husband, I mean, what does it say to that wife? If the husband says, well, you know, baby, we went out last week. I mean, do we really have to go out again? I mean, we, we don't really use this term anymore. It's kind of a derogatory term. I would hate it if it was used, again, you know, towards me. There used to be a time, and, and probably there's other metaphors used today that I'm not aware of, but, but I, guys would refer to their wives as that old ball and chain. I'll give you two good reasons why I don't ever call Ellen my old ball and chain. The second one is she would kill me. But the number one reason, the biggest reason, is because she ain't. She's not the old ball and chain. She's my treasure. And she's the thing that I think about. I shouldn't say the thing. She's the person I think about all the time. And I, and I, and I think about, you know, how can I be a better husband to her? And, and you know what? It's the, the flip side is true. You know, I'm not her old ball and chain either. I mean, she thinks about ways to please me and to be a better wife and to make me happy and, and to give me joy in this life. But if you say, well, I've got this duty... I've made these promises, I've made all of these vows, and unfortunately they're written down on this piece of paper called a marriage license. I guess I'm going to have to follow through. If that's the way you think about it, then there really isn't any love, there isn't any affection, there isn't any warmth, there's really nothing but frowns. And that marriage is going to struggle to make it. But on the flip side, think of the other side of that coin. The same thing is true of a marriage that is all love and no duty. That is, you know, if any spouse says, you know, I am only going to be loving and I'm only going to be affectionate and I'm only going to be generous when I feel like it, he has created or she has created a relationship that's not going to be very loving or generous or affectionate much of the time. If you only do it because you feel like it, listen, friends, my, my, my good friends, in, in, in good marriages... The feelings reinforce the duty. I do what is right. But at the same time, the duty reinforces the feelings of love. They move together. They move together. And the same is true with Christianity. I mean, how many of us here do Christian? We, we do the faith. We do the Christianity. We do the church thing because it's the one thing we're afraid not to do. We do our faith. We go to church because it's the thing that we're afraid not to do. And how many of us come here on Sunday mornings only out of duty and not out of love, thus making our church experience a drag? And you know what God is? The old ball and chain. 
And it's kind of hard to get excited to sing about the old ball and chain, right? And it's, it's kind of difficult to think about being generous with the old ball and chain. And you know what? It's kind of hard to think that I need to be giving my time in other areas and being sacrificial when it's really only for the ball and chain. I'd rather be doing something else, but I've got this duty. You see, I was baptized a couple of years ago, and my sins have been forgiven, so I guess I owe the old ball and chain my Sunday mornings. That's not how it works. There are way too many believers whose main impulse is to practice Christianity because of the fear of not doing it. We don't see him as the bridegroom. It's more like an insurance policy. And I, you know, I I know the insurance salesmen like the premiums, but I mean, nobody likes paying premiums, but you do it because you're more afraid to not have it, right? That's not Christianity. Jesus is the bridegroom. And He is the Lord of a wedding feast. And have you ever wondered why everyone... And and, and again, you know, these wedding feasts typically were different in the first century than they are today. At the wedding feast back in the first century, that was one of the few times during the year that you might even have a piece of meat. And every day during that first century in that agrarian economy, that agrarian society, there was especially up in the north where Jesus was was preaching all of this, Jesus is talking to people who every day had to figure out what they're going to eat. And every day they couldn't make a run to the H-E-B or to, to Bill Miller's for fried chicken. They had to make the bread. And they had to prepare the food and it was time consuming. And there was a lot of there was a lot of time that was consumed in trying to figure out how are we going to sustain ourselves. And so whenever there was a wedding feast, there were all these great preparations. There was an abundance of food. There was food that you didn't eat except at wedding feasts. And, and there, was, there was all kinds of, of uh, uh, time off during that day in which you could be with a family. And it was festive and everybody wore their best. And it was a great day. Everybody looked forward to that wedding feast. That's why when Jesus says, you know, there were all these people invited to my wedding feast and the ones that decided to go were kind of kicked out, it was because they were doing the most silly thing anybody could imagine. But in that metaphor, Jesus is saying, you know what? To say you're not going to come into my kingdom is like saying you don't want to go to the wedding feast. Nobody in their right mind would do it. So festive was it. So why is everyone happy at the wedding feast? It's that bond of of duty and love. They see two people who love each other enough to make promises and vows to each other for all of life. And that excites people. I mean, when's the last time we had a feast around here because a guy said to a girl in the backseat of a car, I'll love you for now. The reason for the feast is the promise that is made. And the emotion that is triggered. And that's why marriage is both a love and a duty, and it's the same thing with your faith. Christians who do the duty without the love will struggle. And believers who don't obey because we owe it to God for who He is and what He has done and how He's revealed Himself to us will struggle as well. He's the bridegroom. But number three, marriage also involves completing. One of the things we don't often think about when Christ refers to Himself as the bridegroom is just how He completes us. And to kind of get our mind around this, we need to unpack Genesis chapter 2 for a moment. 
you know the story. We're kind of at the end of the creation account in Genesis, and God uh, brings Eve to Adam, who, who up to that point has not been feeling quite right. I mean, there, you know, he's been naming all of these animals, but there's none that really kind of complete him, that he feels any kind of a relationship with until he brings Eve to Adam. And when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And it's not recorded for us. But maybe Eve said the same thing when she saw Adam. But here's the thing that we, that, that we need to, to, to see in this text, is that God in His infinite wisdom has created Eve out of Adam in such a way that there is an incompleteness to Adam unless Eve is there. And then the very next verse... That's verse 23. In the very next verse, verse 24 of Genesis 2 says, and it's for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become what? Say it. One flesh. That becoming one means that a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, belong together. When Adam says, this is bone of my bones, he is now saying, I am now whole. It's man and woman coming together and, and being one, which is one of the really amazing things about marriage. That person you, you mar- you're married to, after a while, sort of becomes a continuation of you. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't think of John without thinking of Randa. I can't think of Herb without thinking of Joy. I can't think of Norris without thinking of Linda. And there are all kinds of you out there that can't think of Mark without thinking of Ellen. It's not an accident that God created marriage and then later on said, this marriage thing is a good metaphor for how I relate to human beings in the church in Ephesians chapter 5. And what he's saying there is because of the bridegroom metaphor and all of the the, the nuances and the, uh, the, the depth of meaning that is in that metaphor to break off from Christ as the bridegroom, is to do a disastrous thing to us as a human being. I mean, He's the bridegroom. And it's not just how much you owe Him, it's that you need Him. You need Him. You, you, you need Him the way that a husband needs a wife, the way that a wife needs a husband. There's the, that yearning. You know, sometimes we see, we see a couple getting married. We're at the wedding and maybe there's not a whole lot of people around, and we say under our breath, you know, you elbow somebody, you say, you know, what in the world does he, she see in him? Or maybe it's vice versa. I mean, does he know what he's getting into? What does he see in her? Well, the answer is pretty simple. They see what it is when you look past the blemished skin and the awkwardness, and you see the real person, and you see the real potential. And they get excited and they get committed to the glorious potential in that person. And they get really enthusiastic about helping that person become all that they're supposed to be. Could you imagine, just imagine what I would be like without Ellen. Could you imagine what I would look like? I mean, it's pretty shabby as it is. I mean, she's got her work cut out for her, right? But could you imagine that? Husbands, just think where you would be without your wife. That one person who is committed to helping you be who it is that you're supposed to be. And my dear friends, when Jesus refers to Himself as the bridegroom, He is saying that He is God. And as God, He really, really sees you. 
And quite frankly, that's why he could eat with tax collectors and sinners when the Pharisees could not. As the bridegroom, he could see what a tax collector by the name of Matthew could be and would be. And as the bridegroom, he could get excited about the potential of sinners becoming saints because as God, that is what he created them to be. And he could see that potential in them. And Christ, as the bridegroom, was not only completing them, but Christ as the bridegroom was completing us. And marriage is not just a bond of love, but it's also a duty and it's also a completing of who we are. But one last thing. It's also about permanence. It's a permanent relationship. Marriages are supposed to last. And underneath Christ referring to Himself as the bridegroom is the the marital commitment of permanence. Jesus, as the bridegroom, is saying, I am and I will be faithful to you. And being the bridegroom means that He is permanently with you and His love has no limits. He's saying, my, my love never goes out and my love never leaves. Now, I, I, I know when you get a group of people together this size that there are a lot of folks that get heartburned when they hear this because they were in a marriage that, uh, that just about destroyed them emotionally because their spouse was not faithful to them or their spouse did not persevere with them. Or the only examples they have are people walking out of marriages, a father leaving a mother, an aunt leaving an uncle. This last week, I'm on the phone with my brother as he's traveling uh, from, from uh, from North Texas to South Texas, and he says, you're not going to believe this phone call that I just had with one of my customers. She was telling me that uh, she had just put her husband in a nursing home, and it's costing her a lot of money. And so she has decided that when her bank account gets down to about $20,000, she's going to divorce him because she's not going to use any of the other resources to take care of him. She's not going to take care of him. We're troubled. And so sometimes we don't like the illustration of marriage because of bad experiences. But, but here's the thing I would offer to all that. The reason we're troubled and sometimes don't like the illustration of marriage because of these bad experiences is for this one reason. is because we know they're not supposed to be that way. The reason we get angry at men and the reason we get angry at women who don't stay is because we know that is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why we get angry. And we get angry because spouses are supposed to be together and husbands are supposed to be permanently loving and wives are supposed to be permanently loving. Now ask yourself, where in the world do you get that idea? Is it not from God? I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. And when Jesus died on the cross, God was saying that He was going to hold back nothing. Nothing. Nada from you. God was saying that He was completely committing Himself to do what was and is best for us. And then think about what Paul is saying in Romans 12 in that very familiar passage where he says, you know, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, Jesus on the cross. I urge you, brothers, in view of that mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
you know, I've, I've, um, I, I don't know, I've probably done close to 300 marriages in the last 30 years or so. Uh, maybe uh, not quite that many, maybe 299, I don't know. And I, I have done them, uh, not only in the United States and not only in Texas, but, you know, in South America and all over the United States. And, and you know, African-American and, and Hispanic and, and gringo, I, you know, just have done Brazilian. I mean, just every kind of wedding just about that you can imagine between a, a man and a woman. And one of the things that has never failed, one of the things that has never failed is that when I see that bride for the first time, it takes my breath away. I've never seen an ugly bride. I've never seen an ugly bride. Coming down that aisle, and I, you know, the, the, the makeup and the hair and the dress, but it's what you see in the eyes and in the, the mouth with the smile. And knowing that I am committing myself to this man whom I love and this man is committing himself to me whom he loves. And, and, and the beauty of that moment is, is it far outshines the, the diamonds and the jewelry and the white dress and the veils and the flowers. It is, it, it is the beauty of pure, unadulterated happiness as a woman and a man come together. And one of the things that Jesus is trying to get inside of our thick heads, church, is, is that that's what He wants to be to us. He doesn't want to be the insurance policy. He doesn't want to be the cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want to be that old ball and chain. He wants to be the object of all of our affection and all of our best energies and all of our best thoughts and he wants to be, he, he wants to be the, the center of all of our contemplations and meditations about what is really precious and what is really a treasure in life. So that when we come together, it's not just out of duty, but it's out of love. And it's not just because we feel like it, but it's because we know that we owe him as the creator of the universe everything. Everything. And that's why when we sing... It's really special. And when we study the Gospels or any other Scripture, it's really special because it's like getting a deeper insight into your spouse. It's like getting a deeper insight into the person that is at the center of all things for you. We're going to give you an opportunity to make that right this morning. You know, perhaps, you know, somewhere along your days, you've kind of gotten to that point where, you know, regardless of all the things that you try to do, there's still that feeling of emptiness. There's still that feeling of kind of a vague aimlessness in your soul. And all of the things that you've tried to do to, to find direction, every compass that you've tried to pick up just didn't quite work. You know, your happiness is not, about, it's not found in things. It's not found in money. It's not found in, 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 in uh, big houses or boats or fancy fishing rods or diamond rings or pearl necklaces. It's not found in an appearance that is fleeting. It's not found in a pleasure that lasts 15 minutes. But it is found in a relationship. 
Not a thing, but a person. The person of Christ. Who made Himself ugly. As we saw last week out of Isaiah 52. Made Himself appalling because of the brutality and the meanness and the violence that was brought down on His head because of our sin. But He did that in order to make us beautiful. And for God not to frown at us when He sees us, but to smile. And if that's what you're looking for this morning, that's what we're here to offer. We're not here to offer you a new new leaf, but a new life. And if you're ready to, 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 to... to dedicate your life to, to, to the kingdom of God and you're willing to, to confess that all of these things that you've done in the past were not working, but the thing that does work is God Himself and to have your sins washed away in baptism and to dedicate yourself to that kingdom life from here on out, there are blessings untold. Untold. But Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And I'm asking you if, if that describes you, if, that, if that, so anything resonates with you in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, then don't, then don't tarry, don't linger, and don't wait. But come. Come to the bridegroom. Let's stand and sing together. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like